0: where I have the pleasure of welcoming Steve Blank. He has led one heck of an interesting life. He's had three careers, actually. First, in the US Air Force for four years during the Vietnam War. Next, as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur in eight startups in two decades with four IPOs. Currently, as an academic teaching at Stanford, Berkeley, Columbia, and NYU. He is the author of The Four Steps to the Epiphany, credited with launching the Lean Startup Movement and the best-selling Startups Owner's Manual. His May 2013 Harvard Business Review cover story on the Lean Startup defined the Lean Startup Movement. It's actually how I first got to know who Steve Blank was. I love that article. He is widely recognized as a thought leader on startups and innovation, named to thinkers 50 of top management thinkers and recognized by the Harvard Business Review as one of 12 masters of innovation. He is also a senior fellow for entrepreneurship at Columbia University. What a wonderful story. Welcome, Steve, to the What's Next podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's always interesting when you uh, read people's bios, right? You go, geez, that's like so much stuff they've done. It's so awesome, and and uh, you know, you're just such a down-to-earth guy. So I can't wait to uh, to get this started. So uh, I, I usually start out with something I call bullish and bearish. It's just a way to sort of loosen up the guests and have a little fun. And our listeners uh, today really enjoy sort of hearing this. Rapid-fire questions of some fun things, so hopefully not too painful. But uh, bullish as if you're really for it, bearish as if you're against it. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, I'm ready. All righty.
0: So, new entrepreneurial hotspots outside of Silicon Valley will bring the next unicorn.
1: Oh, for sure, bullish.
0: Me too. Plus, you know that's kind of already happening, but you know I think people forget that there's places other than that in the world that are doing some really cool things. Uh, next, Bitcoin will become more popular to fund startups.
1: Um, yeah, bullish, uh, unfortunately.
0: Bullish-ish.
1: <laughs> bullish, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. All right, that's a new one. I like that. And the third one is a, is a little fun. One day soon, we will see a startup founded by AI or a machine. Uh, bearish. Okay, like I, I want to dig into that one because I think that's I think that's a fun question. Uh, but you know, before we get started, you know, for for those who are are listening in and may not be familiar with lean startup, which I think would be interesting in and of itself, but. If, we, if you wouldn't mind uh, just sort of defining what that means and kind of what, what got you to that point, and then we can, we can go from there.
1: So Lean Startup is just a, a kind of a catch-all phrase to describe a 21st century way of building uh, new ventures whether they're in, uh, uh, standalone startups or they're innovation inside uh, corporations or government agencies. It basically was my observation that in the 20th century, unintentionally, investors were telling us to build startups like they were smaller versions of large companies. And everything a large company did, you know, write a plan, five-year forecast, raise money, execute the plan, and then stand back and expect that you have a big enough building to put the bags of money was what we were told to have to do and what will happen. Turns out it never turned out that way and we didn't understand why and lean is the observation that startups don't execute a known business model they search for one but we had a hundred years of tools for execution and zero tools for searching so a lean startup of the tools to build um, to search for a business model when you have a series of unknowns and it consists of just three parts alexander osterwalder's business model canvas to frame hypotheses or a fancy word for Keep track of your guesses. My customer development process of uh, assuming there are no facts inside your building, so get the heck outside. So what do you do to to kind of test those hypotheses? And Eric Brees' observation, that says the way we ought to build what were called minimum viable products, that is build the products iteratively and incrementally, was to use something called agile engineering. So to answer your question, lean is three components, business model canvas, customer development, agile engineering. Yeah, we had Alex
0: on and it was fantastic. I, I love uh, business model canvas. I think I'm a visual learner. Yeah. Not, a, not a Listen, yeah, and so I loved that. Uh, I, I have used that canvas even just to not even in a startup model, right, but just to organize thoughts sometimes where uh, it's just been helpful and applicable across the board. I, I, I'm a big fan for sure. Um, and, and a lot of that was around business model. How, how has that changed now with this, you know, obviously crossing into the 20th, 21st century. Uh, but you know, I know that that's sort of those things, but over the last couple of years, uh, you know, the acceleration in which companies can build and up has, has drastically shifted. So would you add anything to those three now, or say that now you're seeing a different spin on them?
1: Well, a couple things happened in the last couple of years, and, and, and I'll just start with the business model canvas for, for uh, nonprofits and government agencies, Alex and I, and, uh, Someone named Pete Newell all got together and modified it into something called the Mission Model Canvas. And the key difference is, is when revenue isn't how you measure success. That isn't a nonprofit. You're not. You're actually measuring achievement or or, uh, or, or something else. And you don't may not have in the military uh, customers, but you might have stakeholders or beneficiaries or something else. Um, we slightly modified the canvas uh, with Alex to to create a a version for those agencies. The other thing that's different is uh, companies and government agencies uh, for the first time ever uh, have looked at startups for tools and techniques And, and that's kind of funny because of course when I started thinking about lean we were looking to companies for tools and the reason why is of course every company and government parts of government are being disrupted by external forces completely out of their control for companies it's startups and with government agencies it's um, non-nation state actors and new peer adversaries and and we ran essentially unintended experiments over the last three to five years in companies and government agencies until they've discovered that while startups are not smaller versions of large companies companies are not bigger versions of startups and just right copying, just copying startup tools actually don't work. We ended up with a ton of innovation theater, but very little innovation that moved the needle for revenue, profit, or or market share, or government even worse for, for, for actual change. And so we're working through what you really need to do in companies and government agencies. And I think that's been a real eye opener um, in those places. In fact, that's where I'm spending a good chunk of my time now.
0: Well, I've had a bunch of conversations around sort of the startup and innovation and agile and you know, with you on now kind of lean and, and, you know, often in my travels around the world, people talk about the sort of, you know, business model looking for it, you know, so how do you, you know, act small while you're big or, you know, act big when you're small, that whole conversation you were just having. But one, one topic that's really started to increase lately is not just this business model, you know, pursuit, both from an innovation standpoint or even replicating or copying or trying to, you know, improve, but the mental model side of business model, and do, how do you think that plays into to people? Um, let's stay on the profit side for a second. You know, to companies that are really trying to grow, and the mental model considerations they have to make.
1: Well, if you think about it, large companies and even government agencies, you know, ninety nine percent of in a steady state of why their people come to work are they're they're They have a job description, their business card is kind of a, think of your business card as kind of a hot link to a page of job description that tells you what you're supposed to do when you come to work every day, and you've signed up for that job. And if the company is growing and executing a current business model, that's just fine. And most people come in for their paycheck and get promoted and go home. That's not what a startup is about. You know, a startup is, you know, our job at 9 a.m. is, Probably pretty different by 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Right. Right. (laughs) A startup is is organized chaos at at, at best, and at worst, it's it's unorganized chaos. Um, And and, and so people forget that in a startup, 100% of the people are are focused in trying to bring order out of chaos and, and trying to find a repeatable and scalable business model. That's the goal of a startup. You know, a startup is a temporary organization. Designed to find a repeatable and scalable business model. Whereas a, a company is designed to execute a known business model. And the types of people you have, the culture you build, they're very different for searching versus execution. And now all of a sudden we're telling people who signed up in large companies to know here's your job, here's whatever, to now do something different. That that creates chaos. And in fact, in the 20th century, um, lots of smart people were talking about the what was called the ambidextrous organization. That right you, to survive, you needed to execute, and you also needed to innovate. And you know, CEOs kind of read those books, and and um, blanking on the name. Great Stanford and um, and MIT professors came up with that. I should know that. There, yeah. And Ro- and Roger Martin did something yeah. as well around it. Yep. Yeah. Um, but but my point is, in the 20th century, yeah, that was nice to have. The problem in the 21st century, it's in fact necessary for survival. Yet we still haven't cracked the code. And worse, in the 21st century, companies are being disrupted at speed. You know, it's not like I'll give you an example. You know, in the 20th century, a startup trying to attack a large corporation, people would laugh hysterically because you know, corporations had billions of dollars, and you had you know a couple million in venture money. Good luck you know, the startups were thought of as ankle biters or maybe, you know, things we would acquire in the large companies. Now in the 21st century, some startups have more capital to spend on on your core products than you do. Holy cow. Um, And there are a ton of them coming after our business. And, you know, worse, they don't need to be profitable. Even worse, they're allowed to break the law. Go ask ask the hotel companies versus Airbnb, Um, you know, and and worse, in the 20th century, no venture capitalists or investors would have funded things that break the law. Now they go, you know what, as long as we're not killing people, let's see if we could change the law. But these guys are rent seekers. So let's see if we could change the entire uh, ecosystem here. So if you're a, a, a 21st century CEO of a corporation or trying to manage a government agency and you went to business school, you, you know more than three years ago, everything you learned in business school is obsolete. In fact, everything, every Jack Welsh rule that worked in the 20th 20th century will put you out of business in the 21st. Go ask the CEO of Macy's what that feels like. And and it's not that people have gotten stupid, it's that the rules have changed and we didn't get the memo. (laughs) And so we need to do very different things. And to answer your question, we're still stuck with what we call the frozen middle. Mm -hmm. The frozen middle is, you know even if you're a ceo who does the head nod to innovation and say yes i get it we need to do it and you're the innovators on the bottom yes we need to do it what's happened is you build policies and procedures in finance hr legal whatever procurement supply chains if you're in the government security that that were designed for processes that that work for execution but actually kill you for innovation because they don't allow right. To use, to be agile, or move with speed, or have any sense of urgency, and so it's the middle of your company that tends to kill innovation.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, in my last life, I worked. Uh, I was a research fellow at Gartner. We used to call it bimodal IT, and everyone got all wrapped around the axle. Of, not everyone, but many got very wrapped around the axle about this. They thought that that the premise of that was you have one sort of keeping the lights on and the other innovating, and they're very sort of separate and distinct. And in many many situations having them separate for a period of time allows the sort of innovative mindset and muscle memory and things to sort of form and figure out how do we keep it you know separate from metrics and you know sort of the org silos and you know all the things that are holding back the 20th for the 20th century thinking potentially and and over time you hope that those two things kind of come together but it's 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 the mental model where i really see people struggle you know that have uh, competed in the 20th century, you know, they've kind of crossed the chasm into the 21st century, which is much more social and mobile and digital and cloud and data, and, you know, all the things we now have at our fingertips, uh, and able to build billion dollar businesses with very little asset outlay, you know, with, with the advent of everything uh, that goes on on the cloud side. Uh, and so if if someone's listening and, and works in an organization that's not a startup, but is trying to you know, inject a small startup mentality, right? As you said, in a big organization, have a little bit of feel of small, how have you seen that work?
1: Well, um, and and by the way, the the two people I were, was referring to earlier is uh, Charles O'Reilly and Michael Tushman, I smacked myself on the head, uh, Riley at Stanford and Tushman at Harvard. Um, you, you know, what I've, what I've seen is, um, is organizations doing a set of things Uh, about 30 years ago McKinsey came up with this model of three horizons of innovation which I think are still relevant Um, you know uh, that every organization needs to be executing on those three horizons horizon one is uh, adding innovation to your current product or business model horizon two is extending or supporting emerging business models. And Horizon 3 is what Silicon Valley mostly does is uh, creating disruptive ones. The problem is, is that in the 20th century, each one of those had kind of a, a fairly understood time horizon. Horizon M1 could happen fast. And horizon 3 took years or decades, it's why the US government would set up DARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency to take, take five to 10 years. Those, that's no longer true. It, it turns out that Horizon Three threats to a company, or, or companies could develop something disruptive, within a year, um, and and so. the the core idea is still true. We need to be running, all three horizons inside of a, a corporation if we want to stay relevant. The question is, we haven't built the organization structure to do that, and what we've seen is that companies have run a a whole set of experiments, unintentionally. You know there's always been individual innovators um, who bang their head against the wall in, in existing organizations and every once in a while they get something past the goal line but they ended up being frustrated and so then we started teaching you know tools and techniques like lean or design thinking inside of companies but those were just tools and then we decided to to train teams by either having internal incubators and accelerators but what we learned is we still had teams disconnected from the core engineering or or functional organization, so those teams never would end up becoming adopted by a division or a functional organization and most of those projects will die and and so what we've been doing now is actually inserting innovation inside the operational groups themselves by doing kind of assessments about what is it in, in in a innovation pipeline we could Accelerate and so we've been kind of um, testing and building innovation pipelines inside of large organizations Um, I I now spend most of my time doing this in government agencies um, Kind of based off my work with the national science foundation building the innovation core for the for uh, all the federal research agencies Um, and to try to build a pipeline that starts with you know where do where do problems and ideas come from all the way to How do we deploy and deliver? Right now, a lot of entrepreneurship programs and innovation programs get you to world-class demos, but don't get you to things that actually get in either customer's hands or deployed in the field. And um, we decided to fix the problem by thinking of it as an end-to-end problem, not as a point activity. That's a long story to say. We've been doing a lot of activities of innovation. You know, let's have a hackathon or let's have an incubator or whatever. And we've forgotten the goal is not those activities. The goal is deployment of things that either generate revenue or or make change in the organization rapidly.
0: And I think this this is where the mental model really struggles, right, because that mental model is uh, if you're going to try to disrupt your business, you know, as Whitney Johnson says, you have to first disrupt yourself. So you know, that, that's sort of what I was trying to get it to the heart of, right? If someone goes, yep, we'll, you know, pop up this in the lab, we'll, we'll have Steve or team or Alex, we'll do a canvas. And, you know, at least now they've opened their door, but the culture itself doesn't even know how to then deal with executing at that pace, right? So to your point, I mean, it's not just about finding the idea. It's like, how do you actually execute it, deploy it, and have it add value, both from a yes. revenue or a customer perspective, right?
1: So, so we've, we've, we've come up with a cheap hack to solve w- what I think is the fundamental problem. Fundamental problem is, is that large co- corporations and government agencies, by their size and scale, are, are mostly, not there are exceptions, but mostly run by Horizon One executives. It's a big idea. When you talk about mindset and culture, Horizon One executive is someone who's great at scaling and building large organizations. They're comfortable with execution. They're world-class executors. They're finance people or sales people or, you know, and they know how to make this business model bigger on day one or two or or do adjacent things. But they're very rarely disruptive people. You know, if you want to look at disruption, look at Elon Musk today or, or Reed Hastings and Netflix or, or when Steve Jobs was multiple businesses within five years what the, the only so they might give you today a head nod to innovation great we ought to do it but they have no idea right what it looks like and so
0: or how to, or how to do it
1: or right? how to do it so yeah. a couple of things one is at least the best of them realize that they need to acquire rather than build internally okay acquisitions work if you don't let the um, kind of let the body you know kind of kill the model um, of what you just uh, acquired and the other idea we've been implementing is what we call appendix a authorities inside of existing organizations and what i mean by that is if you build an innovation pipeline inside of a new division or a functional organization yes you could get innovation going but the first time you ask for something from finance and they go oh well you know you don't have the authority to sign off for travel or you can't you know you can't go to this conference or worse you need a new cable well that's a 90 day procurement cycle it needs to go through a bidding process or and and what we've decided was we don't want to reform every process in the company and we don't want to turn everybody and then company quote into an innovator because that's just not possible what we want to do is have them be able to go to their finance handbook or HR handbook when they say oh no you can only hire the most senior people into the group because we go by seniority and you're looking for the most creative you want them to say is, oh, there's an appendix A if you're in an innovation group and have the innovators write the appendix A exceptions for how do you operate at speed. That's the problem in large corporations is that they try to apply all the processes and procedures and KPIs and and metrics they've built for execution to innovation. There is no exception. agree yeah and so rather than rewriting all the processes and bringing in a large consulting firm and spending tens of millions of dollars to to revamp the business processes, the innovators will write the appendices and and again we've built models here where we're able to kind of let this flow at speed without screwing core big ideas without screwing up the core business um, and so um, so it's a combination of uh, both acquisition and figuring out where an external innovation pipeline could come in. For example, the US government, some agencies have not realized that, you know, we spend 70 to $100 billion a year now on venture capital per year, (laughs) funding new ideas and technologies that the government has no idea it's occurring outside their four walls. Um, So just letting them know that there's an innovation pipeline that they could tap into for a lot of government agencies has been an eye opener. There are now companies that take government agencies out on, on like a technical terrain walk in Silicon Valley and kind of say, give us your toughest problems and we'll take you to vendors not to have them sell you anything, but to to talk and, and socialize the problems you have. And they they leave here with their eyes like just bulging out of their sockets going, well, we, well, we were just gonna write a, million contract to solve that. Oh my gosh, there there are people already building this thing and we could just buy it off the shelf.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I think, uh, uh, you know, beyond sort of the basics and, and everything you just said is such hard stuff, right? Because it's people intensive and mindset intensive, right? Which is much harder than saying, can we get that technology to do this? You could hack your way through that. But Getting people to do it at scale, especially in large organizations, is difficult. So let me let me pivot a second uh, to, to the startups. And I used to get uh, asked this question, and I know you get asked it a lot too, and I've heard sort of some of your very quick answers, but I'd love to love to dig in a little more, is for startups listening. Uh, you know, I often get asked as founders, you know, everybody has to be a salesperson, quote unquote, you know, and, and understand what that means. But when to hire your first salesperson, like a true salesperson, um, and when to strike your first sort of external partnerships—that uh, seems to be where I find startups really struggle. Uh, what What are your thoughts there? You know, the, the
1: uh, one of the key ideas of Lean is uh, what's called product market fit. In fact, Mark Andreessen actually named it, I think. Um, and that is, have you found a fit between customer needs and your first? product or what we call your first minimum viable product. Um, And a lot of people I grew up in a world where you hired your first VP of sales when it said so in the plan and the mistake we used to make is we'd hire per plan regardless of whether we found customers. In fact, that was, that was the responsibility of the salesperson. And in fact, implicitly in the 20th century and startups still make this mistake is, well, you know, we spec the product we gave it to sales they have to sell it and if they fail it's obviously a failure of those individuals <laughs> right well, seriously that's how we still think it's it said so here in the plan and by the way once my vcs gave me money that plan was been blessed by god there could be nothing possibly wrong with the plan never once thinking that that perhaps we just pulled that out of our some orifice <laughs> rather than just getting some customer feedback or input and and so the whole notion of lean is to get out early and the founders need to do that, or, or not a VP of sales, but maybe backed up by some sales type that allows you to kind of interact with the customers doing customer, what we call customer discovery and validation. Is is this, are we on the right track? And, or if it's something completely disruptive, you know, getting out of the building and making sure our, our kind of what we believe vision is actually matched by, by facts in the field because what we know is that while 100% of founders think they're visionaries, data says about 95% of them are actually hallucinating. Uh, <laughs> and, and this, this idea of having some signal of product market fit before you scale is one of the core tenets of lean. Did I answer your question?
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I saw, I did some work where it, which I know you're very familiar with sort of the chasm, right? And, and, but more importantly, sort of the Gartner hype cycle, which gets people all riled up as well. Um, And so I wrote a note uh, when I was there and it was how you go to market, sell market and partner at each of the phases of the hype cycle are very different where, you know, what you do in the beginning is founders are selling to, let's say it's a technology product, right? Founders are selling most likely to, you know, if it's a security product that, you know, CSO, right? Or the CIO or the IT manager or the database man, like they're going right to the person who gets it. So founder, you know, propeller tech head to, to you know, actual user uh, tech, propeller tech head, great conversation. The moment the founders, you know, kind of seed a few customers and then they start to get some scale, now they need other people to sell. And then it's, you can't have that high-level founder kind of technical conversation. Now you might hire your first salesperson, and then you get a little, more, and then. But when you're in long tail, you know, and you're out, whatever point in time, you may start using other selling models. It could be, you know, on commerce, you might partner with somebody, you know, online. Whatever happens, but it's not the same. And I think many people, um, you know, uh, especially when they're starting up and don't know how to actually go to market with a product uh, and they and they don't have that voice of the customer edge to them that they get very frustrated and and uh, find themselves struggling
1: yeah so 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 remember at least Steve's definition of a startup it's a temporary organization designed to search for and find a repeatable and scalable business model right a repeatable and scalable sales model the assumption that that founders make who haven't done this before is, oh, hire a VP of sales. I've now found a business, uh, uh, you know, an implicitly a sales model. Where or why don't I hire the, a great VP of sales who came recommended from from a VC, who brings whatever contact list they had in their last company and starts making calls without understanding, well, how does that apply to this startup or this market or this business? Gee, I might have been great in direct sales, but yes, maybe this is a, you know, an indirect sale. Or, gee, maybe I, I should generate leads differently. Or maybe the, the features aren't right or the right order. Engineering handed me this pile of product, but who knows whether that's the right mix. I, I just keep going back to the odds of getting sales right on day one is as close to zero as any bet as you could make. That's why you know salespeople have a half life of at best 14 months in a startup. Think about that, 14 months. In fact, I, I kind of tell all of them. They don't realize they've been given a jacket that has a bullseye painted on their back. And the and the reason why is, unless they ask, have you guys discovered what what the business model is? You're just guessing and throwing darts at the ball, and it's an expensive mistake because obviously that wastes. Time, resources, etc. We just burn through cash here. Now, the the good news is, in the in this part of the 21st century, most startups can afford to make that mistake, right? Um, yeah. So what? We'll raise more money, or you know, we'll increase your valuation, especially if we have the word AI in our in our name. But. Um, it's, it's incredibly inefficient.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I I call myself a recovering seller. So I feel the pain of the 14 months, you know? Uh, and I think it's, it's one of those things that absolutely has to be, uh, you know, once again, companies do, I'm oversimplifying two things, right? You make stuff, sell stuff. And if you make really great stuff and you can't sell it, doesn't matter. <laughs> if yep. you make okay stuff and you could sell the heck out of it, fantastic. Yep. If you make, you know, terrible stuff and you can't sell it, well, there's a reason. And so you have to marry those two things together. And and I almost want to say that now that customers have become the expectations from customer, and I use that in kind of air quotes, you know, the consumer, the customer, whoever is buying that product or using that product, the expectations are so different. And I know it's one of your tenants to sort of like, you know, get out of the four walls. Uh, I think that visiting customers and listening to customers and having a pulse, I don't mean you have to, if you did that, you'd make faster horses, right? Or you don't have to have the whisper of a Steve Jobs. You just have to get out ahead of them enough that you're not too far ahead where you get yourself in trouble. But if you don't have any idea what's going on in the customers that are going to potentially use your product, uh, I don't think you can get away with, I can build it and they will come anymore.
1: Yep. Well, you know, though I I do want to, just point out there are some segments w- where the value of the company is completely unaligned with revenue. And and so one wants to remind founders, there are market segments like AI or robotics or whatever that both VCs and acquirers um, are not acquiring for revenue. And so the, the first thing you need to do if you're in a startup is to ask, you know, are yeah, we building something in enterprise software or social media where we're going to be measured on numbers, or are we going to be measured on, and I don't want to use the, um, I'll use it because I'm groping for another one, hype and perceived value to right. the buyer. Those are very different startups, um, and investors are always optimizing their return, not their not your revenue, and most of the time that's aligned. Some of the time it's not aligned. Does that make sense?
0: it it absolutely makes sense. And so, you know, as we as we sort of wrap this up, I I'd love to hear from you if you know there's companies that are listening that want to be more agile and want to feel more lean and I and I say that in sort of with a smile on my face, right? That they just really are looking to innovate and they're willing to do the work. What are sort of the one or two things you'd say is kind of what's next for that? What's the next thing for them to do? The first thing would be, yes, I want to do it. Like they, they have to be willing, but beyond what would be the next one or two things you'd tell them to do, right? Within an established company, they are either a individual contributor or a line manager or a manager or, an, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Sort of, what would be the next thing you'd, you'd suggest that they do?
1: Well, the next thing I'd suggest that they would, they should do is to step back and ask, are they an entrepreneur or are they an innovator? And, and, it's the rare person who's both. An innovator is someone who has a great idea or, or sees some process that needs to be fixed, whether it's physical or, or some business process. An entrepreneur, though, is, is much rarer. An entrepreneur is someone who knows how to make stuff happen, get the ball all the way to the end of the goal, uh, either in a startup or in a large company, knows how to like, work the system. It's the combination of an innovator and entrepreneur that's the beginning of a very interesting team. And, and so, in a corporation, um, you desperately, if you're an innovator, need an entrepreneur as a partner. And if you're an entrepreneur, you better be teaming with a someone who is, wants to solve a high-value problem for the company.
0: That—that's I love. I actually, I love that. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody define it that way. And and it almost defines me to the team to the T. I'm definitely an innovator and not an entrepreneur. But you know, for a while there, for a moment, for a hot second. <laughs> Well, I I thought I was, and then I really realized I'm just, I'm not, I have, I've got the ideas and I can help people go and do it for, for me to, you know, kind of come up with the whole, come up with the canvas, execute the canvas, you know, and all of it, I would have to do it with, with an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. This goes back to way back when Dave McClure, you know, said the the perfect founding team for social media was a hacker, a hustler, and a designer. And, And so this is the this is kind of a little more of an explanation between the distinction of that hacker and, and, and hustler, right? One has to be able to do or come up with something or the science, but the other has to figure out the political system of inside a company to, to just wind your way through all the people whose job it is to say no, or gee, you haven't followed the rules or whatever. This is why our, our model is to kind of modify those rules to allow what historically has been a series of no's. Um, you know, this Appendix A authorities that actually is designed to get to yes rather than get to no without screwing up a corporation is designed to make that entrepreneur's path and inside a large company a lot easier by just explicitly removing obstacles for, for innovation.
0: That's great. Okay, now Flip, On the other side of the coin, same question, startup, right? I am I am an entrepreneur, I have a great idea, I've just started my process, you know, I'm following the methodologies I've, you know, I'm in. And what, you know, if you could say, look, there's two things, three things that you hear from me through this podcast or anything I've ever done, it would be these things that I think are the greatest indicators of whether
1: you're going to be able to come out the other side of this. Well, as I've gotten older, I, I kind of think the one size fit all advice probably the best advice is that one size fit all advice doesn't really fit, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'll try. Um, you know, I think the best test for, um, an entrepreneur is if you're not comfortable with chaos and uncertainty, you ought to get a day job. Um, because that is the one guarantee that happens in an early stage venture. It never goes per plan. Um, and if you're not, tenacious and resilient. Um, If you're not willing to call somebody up, if you, I I used to live in California, I'd call up somebody in New York and just make it up and say, hey, I'm gonna be across the street uh, tomorrow, you wanna have coffee? And if they said yes, I would jump on a red eye and and go take that coffee, because it was an important meeting. If you're not prepared to do those kinds of things, um, it's the wrong business, and if you're not, resilient and by resilient means you're gonna be, you're gonna get punched in the face a lot. Um, it's the wrong business. It, it doesn't it doesn't go like the popular press tells you how wonderful it's gonna be. I mean, it's the world's best time to be an entrepreneur. Um, it, uh, there's more, more money, more knowledge, more support than ever, but um, it is very different than working in a large company. Um, and uh, it's not all about, you know, bring your dog to work. It's about an immense amount of work. And in fact, if you're a founder, I declare it as, you know, succeeding is almost an act of aggression uh, because it's against all odds. Uh, that's as a founder, as a, as an employee it might actually be fun. You know, it's a team it's, there's, uh, there's team spirit, et cetera. But if you're a founder, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders of burn rate, cash, having to shut the door. Have we found product market fit? Um, it's, um, it, it, it's that part is still the same. And, and with all that, it's the most exciting thing you could do in your life. uh short sure to being shot at
0: uh, <laughs> now. There's a comparison, <laughs> start a company or get sure shot at. Those are the two, well, two most exciting I, things.
1: I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not comparing it. I'm saying short sure of, yeah, short sure of. But but if you love that kind of thrill then this this and and i also want to differentiate the role of a founder is very different from any other role in a startup and most people mistake oh i worked in a startup well were you the founder and ceo well no but i know what it's like you don't have a clue because the founder is the one that's figuring out how to raise the money keep the lights on figuring out whether you know they found product market fit whether this thing will scale Dealing with investors and board meetings—I mean, that's a very different role than I was the, you know, the chief technical officer or something else. Um, and it's—it's it's not that one is better than others, but those roles are very different. Uh, so if you want to found the company and want to run it, make sure you understand what you're signing up for.
0: Well, this has been fantastic, Steve. I, you know, I so appreciate your time. I I have been a fan for a long time. I've had Alex on and now you on. It's just, it's been uh, really a pleasure having this conversation. I I could tell you, I learned a lot. It was great to get your insights on things. I'd read from you and listened from you for a long time. So I do appreciate your time today with with
1: us on the What's Next podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was fun.
0: Now I know why I enjoy so much of what Steve Blank puts out. It was fantastic. I loved his insight around the frozen middle when people are stuck between this innovation quandary of if I'm a big company, how do I act small? If I'm a small company, how do I act big? If I've got different mental models and business models floating around with different metrics, like. It's in this frozen middle where people stop moving forward. I just love that. The other that thing that really stood out to me, personally anyway, was just an innovator versus an entrepreneur. I think you can have lots of great ideas, but if you can't take them to fruition and execute on them where they really add value to the business and or your customer, it's a waste of time. And so for the startups out there, I hope you enjoyed listening to the father of Lean Startup and to the big companies out there, if you're an individual contributor or a leader, you know, maybe you can bring back some of this thinking and, and, and your next meeting, ask some of the questions Steve did and really try to push people to think differently about what they're doing today around innovation. With that, I so appreciate you listening to the What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, share with your friends and leave a comment if you've enjoyed this. And I look forward to you listening next time. Thank you, have a great day.